<laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through 20. I don't look directly into your eyes today. Know why? I think I can preach. I just can't talk to you directly sometimes. Um, I've been praying about this text for a couple of weeks. I've entitled the sermon, A Pastor's Gift to Jesus. A Pastor's Gift to Jesus. The text reads this way. Verse 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in person but not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. You may be seated. Father, we are but dust and we are so frail. David stared into the stars and the heavens and said how great you were. He was overwhelmed by your person. But then he said words that we understand the most. He says, but you are mindful of us. It staggers the mind, Father, to think that you would know us from the foundations of the world. And you would love us while we were yet sinners. Stained with ugliness. Self-centered. Not desiring you at all. And you would still love us. And you would draw us to yourself. We're humbled, Lord. And then, Lord. You allow us to bear fruit for you, Lord. You allow us to bring the crown of that fruit to you for worship. And we thank you for that, Lord. Strengthen me now, Lord, as we teach your word. May your spirit speak, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning... Or yesterday, I started receiving some letters from Pastor Nilo in the Philippines, and he is sick again, and he is in the hospital. I don't think our Pastor Nilo will be with us much longer um, with his health, and he has trained men in the ministry as healthy and strong. Um, but he started out his letter with just such passion for Christ. Overwhelmed that God would save him. Overwhelmed by the gospel. Overwhelmed that we as sinful creatures would receive such a gift. And it is a gospel why we do everything we do. It is because of what Christ has done motivates us to preach, to sing, to love our spouses, to love our children, to love our church.
to be patient with one another. It is the gospel that does that. And there is no greater human being that I see in the scriptures than the Apostle Paul who had the opportunity to shepherd so many different churches. And I've learned so much from just in these last six months as God was preparing us and directing us and, and trying to match my emotions with, this, with knowing of the coming and pending day that we would walk away from here someday. And I turned to passages like this and, and found comfort. I remember reading this a while back and I said, Lord, I want to preach that text. Because Grace Bible Church, in a sense, is my hope, is my joy, is my crown. And though the Lord separates us, it will be Grace Bible Church, the fruit of Grace Bible Church, that I, Scott Menez, will cast back to the Lord someday. I sat there Friday in my office and tried to figure out how to entitle this message. And I typed several things and deleted them, and typed several things and deleted them. And finally, I came up with this title, A Pastor's Gift to Jesus. This is what pastors do. And so I have three thoughts that I just want to take you down. I'm try to be as brief as possible, although I could go as long as I want today, I think. <laughs> the first one comes out of verse 17. A pastor's gift to Jesus is to love the flock of Christ. Look at verse 17. Notice this love that he has for them. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away, your Bible might say it used the word torn away. There's a reason why, and I'll explain that in a minute, from you for a short while in person, but not in spirit. Those are important words, aren't they, right there? Does everybody relate with that? We, we are going to separate for a short time, but you will never separate our spirits. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. I think the love for the flock of Christ is the gift pastors give to Jesus. A pastor's gift to his Savior is that he loves Christ's blood-bought church. He doesn't settle for anything else. He loves them. In hard times and good times, times when they like you and times when they don't, <laughs> you love Christ church. When you love something, you'll sacrifice for it. And I think Paul is such a great example of that. He loved the church so much that he knew though he was torn away, he longed to be there. I want to take you to Acts 17 so you can understand what actually took place here and why there's so much emotion in these verses. And when they had traveled, verse 1, through Anthropolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of Jews and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them in the scripture. So he's in Thessalonica now and he's in the synagogue and he's trying to explain the gospel to them. 
the thing that will save their eternal souls. He's trying to reach them with the gospel. And explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer to rise from the dead. And what was he using when he did that? Old Testament, it's all he had. New Testament was written. He's proving Christ from Genesis through Malachi to them. And he had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah, Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, they became jealous Gospel was taken away their authority. You can see this happening and taking away some and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. Oh my goodness. See, the gospel either excites you or causes you to be full of hate. It just does that. It does that does that to people. You've seen it in your own lines. And look what they did. They went to the marketplace. They they know where these type of men hang out. And they go get them. They're almost mercenaries for the, for the cause against the gospel. And they set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. They think Paul's there because he's established relationships within the community. And Jason's house was probably where the church was meeting at one time. Verse 6, and when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Well, I think Paul's ministry was fairly effective. <laughs> They've upset the world. The known world was upset because of what Paul preached. Brothers and sisters, don't get angry when people don't like you when you preach the gospel. They upset the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and just think, when you come in and you say, it's not about you, you have nothing to add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you rob them of their idols. You rob them of their vain attempts to bring them to God and it angers them if they're not saved. And they were angry. Verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them. Here's one who has welcomed them. Jason is being persecuted because he believes the gospel and he believes the men who are preaching it. And they, verse 7, middle 7, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They don't even like Caesar. They care less about Caesar. They're Jews. They hate the Romans. And so in order to incite, they speak lies and believe it's okay to speak them because they they're, they're trying to justify their ends. This is the outrage against the gospel. Verse 8. They stirred up the crowd 
and the, cities, and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and others, they released them. Verse 10, and the brother immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They were in the city. They had them hidden in there, sent them away to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. What men? What amazing men. Paul loved Christ's church, even though he suffered greatly for it. And if you know Paul at all and you studied him, they had to push him out of town. And I think that's why he writes in our text that I was torn away so abruptly. He did not want to leave these dear brethren. He loved the church. He repeats this type of stuff all through the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you remember this text where he goes down through all the things that have happened to him? He's been beat, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, snake bit. I mean, he goes down through this whole list. And at the end of that list, in verse 28, he says this, apart from such external things, (laughs) external, beat, beat to the point of death, He calls them just external things. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. There there is no greater pressure in the life of a pastor than the church. There's not a, a person in this room that I do not know something about you and what's going on in your life. And how your hurts and your joys and your struggles, you carry that. Pastors carry that weight and you can't get rid of it. It's there and and it's a good thing and it's a difficult thing at times. And Paul, when he says, I've got these concerns for the churches, I mean, you just imagine, we're just thinking one church, Grace Bible Church, he's got dozens of churches planted now and they're growing And he knows that that they're hated by Satan, they're hated by the Jews, they're hated by all who oppose the gospel. And he fears for them. See, Paul loved the church. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. I just want you to see how he speaks about the church. And, And my words are not inspired in any way, but this, I mean, when I read this, this is how he speaks about you. This is how I talk about you when I go places, when I preach around the globe. This is how I talk about you. Romans 1 verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome or Hollister, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. Isn't that amazing? When people come to faith, it gets shared. Verse 9, And for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as, how to, as to how increase, increasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, mentioning requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, 
each of you by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Look at Philippians chapter one. I just picked out a few. Almost every letter has deep love for the brethren. I picked this one out because we just went through Philippians. Verse three says, I think, in chapter one, verse three, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all. It's, it's so fun as a pastor to preach with, uh, and pray with joy for the brethren. It's not, it wasn't always that way. There were hard times. We made mistakes. We, we, we were attacked. I mean, things happened, but you, it's so wonderful to pray with joy. And I want you to know when I think of you, I pray with joy. Five, in view of your participation in the gospel, that's why. It's not because you're nice to me, because you like me, because we get along good. It's because you thought the gospel was worth standing for. That's what makes a pastor joyful. The gospel's worth standing for. It's worth leaning into the winds of difficulties. Verse six, we love this verse, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's gonna finish us, guys. He's gonna finish the reformation in our lives. He's gonna chisel away. He's gonna get us right to the very image of Christ. And when we see Christ, we will be like him. Verse seven, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then verses nine through 11 are very similar to what we read in Colossians. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment. That word tells you that there's a lot of unreal knowledge False knowledge. He wants you to grow in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may prove the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which only, brothers, comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Even to the Corinth church, which was his greatest nemesis, they were difficult he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of my heart, I wrote to you with many tears so that you, so that you would be made sorrowful, that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Oh, I get that verse. There was great affliction at time in Corinth. It doesn't change a pastor's heart. So why I said this is a gift of a pastor to Jesus that he loves the flock. We read last week and preached out of Acts 20 and there at the end when he says goodbye and man, what is that a hard passage to read? I mean, they fall on his neck and they weep. And that's the connection that we will always have. This is why often Pastors refer to the true church as brothers and sisters in Christ. You've heard me for years say that. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the brethren. 
We're the family of God and there is a love for one another because we've all experienced the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and has connected us indebitably for eternity. We're forever brethren because Jesus took our sins away. He's freed us and he calls us joint heirs. God calls us joint heirs with his son. And that doesn't change because somebody moves and goes somewhere. We're forever joint heirs with Jesus Christ. One more thought in this verse as you turn back to our text in 1 Thessalonians. Notice that, that even though God has clearly allowed for the circumstances to pull Paul away from Thessalonica church, he doesn't stop preaching and serving. We read in Acts that he keeps going. He moves to Berea. After all of what happened, after everything he went through at Thessalonica, what does he do first? He goes to the synagogue and preaches to the next group of people. And if you see that text there in Acts 17, he goes to Berea, Athens, Corinth, and so on. He just keeps preaching the gospel. That's a gift pastors give to Jesus. You keep preaching. You don't give up. I said this at the end of the service last week. My last point was remember to keep an eternal perspective. Keep serving even though God may separate us for a time. Keep an eternal perspective. We will stand before the Lord someday and everyone will give an account of what they have done in the flesh. Not sin, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but we will give an account. Pastors will give an account the church will give an account. Husbands give an account. Wives give an account. Parents give an account. We will give an account for what God has given us. Keep an eternal perspective. Second thought. Suffer for the flock of Christ. The pastor's gift to Christ is that he'll suffer for the flock. Look at this in verse 18. For we want you to come for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. I think what struck me as I read this text is that Satan is involved more than I think we think. I am just struck at ministry around the world that I have my hands in here and there and our ministry here and so on. How Satan must hate what we do. And if it was not for the grace of God and the hedge that he puts around us, he would try with everything he has to destroy us. If God loves it, he hates it. If God hates it, he loves it. Isn't that true about him? And Satan, and, and Satan here is hindering Paul, Satan, uh, Paul attaches us to the work of Satan in some way, though God allows it. I don't have time to go there, but you remember Job. I was just reading Job this week. And, and the sons of God, these fallen angels and 
elect angels are before the Lord and, and the Bible says and Satan comes also. And God says, where have you been? He said, I've been going to and fro the earth. That sounds just like 1 Peter 5, 8. He's roaming, looking to devour people. And you know the text, God says, have you considered my servant, Job? He's blameless and he's upright. He says, yeah, but you protected him. And I can't get to him. I absolutely love that verse. Because you are no match and I am no match for the great created being of Satan. Of course, the smart aleck that he is says, well, you drop his hedge and he'll curse you. And God says, you know, the story says you just can't touch him. He's yours. And it's overwhelming to read that. Ron and I have talked about this where just one servant after another keeps coming. They're all dead. <laughs> they're all dead. Each one of them, they're all dead. Just one after another. All your flocks, your herds. And the last one comes says, your children are dead. I wept as I read that this week. I, I, God, I don't know how I'd ever handle that. In the last verse, verse 20 says, he fell down and worshiped God. Next chapter, Satan comes back again. Have you considered my servant Job? He says, yeah, but you let me touch his body and he'll curse you to the ground. And everybody else curses God in the text. His wife, wife curses God, says, curse God and die, Job, this isn't worth it. He says, we've seen good things and Yet now when the difficult things come, should we now turn on God? And Job never does. And it's a reminder, Grace Bible Church, that when we stay in step with him and we walk in ways that are a product of the gospel, not a product of our own strength, not in works of righteousness that we have done, but we walk in a, in, through the strength of the gospel, the Lord will protect you and he'll protect this church. Brothers and sisters, it is dark out there. And that's why churches are often called a lighthouse. Because God protects us. He hymns us in. And there he lets his light shine through us. See, the fight isn't against people. Sometimes you go, oh, that person shouldn't have done that or so on. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You've got to remember that. He says, but it's against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness and heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle for the church. And we know, without a shadow of a doubt, Christ loves his bride. So that means Satan hates the bride of Christ. You must realize that. Verse 18 in our text says that Satan hindered him. The old English says thwarted him. The Greek word there has the idea of causing a great disturbance or making an impassable object in front of one's progress. I don't, 
understand all that because it doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us exactly what that was. But Paul is saying, I was thwarted by Satan to come to you. Satan knew that Paul was going to bring the gospel and so he did everything in his power to stop that. Paul had other men that he trained. And Thessalonica had men who loved the church in it already. And they carried the torch. Just like what will happen with Grace Bible Church. Men pick up the torch and keep preaching the gospel. And Satan doesn't have his way. He wasn't able to hinder the progress of the Thessalonica church. I, I, another, another thought on this. I, I love Paul's view of this because he sees a true shepherd is allowed to suffer for the protection of Christ's flock. He didn't want to leave, but he knew if he stayed there, what would happen? They would root him out, not only try to kill him, but try to kill people in the church. They would try to destroy them. So he suffers, and his suffering was, I'm going to get away, I'll be removed from them, so that they will not be attacked. And that's why I said, pastor's gift to the Lord is that they'll suffer for the flock, for what's best for them. I think you know this. Moms and dads, what would you, what would you do? What suffering would you take to replace the suffering of your children. You would do anything, wouldn't you? You would take any disease, you would take any shot, you, you, would, you would take any death to spare your, parent, your children from it as parents. Would you not? You understand this. We, we've seen it in life. Even unregenerate people, teachers get shot protecting their children in their classroom. See, it's innate to us to protect those we love. You protect them. You lay down your life for them. Soldiers throw themselves on grenades and block other soldiers. Absolute hero work that done that we hear stories of. Husbands protecting wives. And pastors protecting flocks. This is our gift to Jesus. It is how you recognize a true shepherd. Look at John 10 quickly with me. And the context is about Jesus, and it needs to stay on Jesus. But there's some great things to learn from this little text right here in John 10. It's many of the I am's in here. He is the, he is the door. I am the door. He's the door to salvation. He's the door to the pasture. He's the door to safekeeping. He's the door to food. And he's the door to all those things. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. So he's, he's modeling the, the true shepherd here. In verse 11, he says, I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the model. You die for the sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? Because we wouldn't even be having this conversation if that didn't happen. We would just be a social help the poor do something nice to somebody day, church. And though we do those things, it's all driven because Christ laid down his life. But then he explains the difference between a true shepherd. He says in verse 12, he who is hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees a wolf coming 
and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. Trenchon turns back to Jesus again and he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Wow, what a great verse. See, you know Jesus because he knows you. And you hear him when he speaks through the word of God and you're inclined to it. And you come to it and you listen. And I would encourage you this morning, keep honoring your shepherds. The men God has raised up here to care for your souls. God will bless a church that honors its leadership. I promise you. I can give you 30 years, 30 plus years of watching people dishonor their shepherds and tell you what happens in their lives. I've watched it over and over and over again. They're not perfect men. We will make our mistakes, but honor your leadership. I think I said last week, when we began to look for that next ministry that the Lord had for us, one of the things we looked at is how do they honor their past leaders? Because it's a direct reflection of how they're going to honor the word and how they're going to honor Christ. Listen to Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Wow, it's powerful. It's about the most scariest verse to us that we have in the scriptures. I'm going to stand someday before the Lord of glory and say, here's what I did with the people you asked me to care for. But let me look at this last part. It says, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Don't, don't make your shepherd's job difficult. And he says this, for this would be unprofitable for you. And there's many people that are, that are not profiting very well because they rejected the counsel of their pastors. And they walk away because they think they know something better. Oh, we'll suffer for the flock. Pastors do that. That's our gift. Care for your pastors. Someone's got to be praying for us. One dear sister in the Lord was meeting with us this week and she said, I pray for every one of the pastors here. And she said, Monday is your day that I pray for you and your wife and your children and your purity and your, your abilities to preach and your study time. Monday's your day and I'll never quit praying for you on Mondays. That's from someone in this building right now. Man, you can't ask as a pastor, you can't ask for anything more than that. That I am being prayed for every Monday. Third and final thought. Present the flock of Christ to its chief shepherd. This is a gift of the pastor to Jesus. Present the flock of Christ to its chief shepherd. I love these last two verses in second chapter of Thessalonians. They read this way. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exhortation? Is it not even you? The exhortation of all that we have is the church as a pastor. This is what we present before God. It is 
And it's going to come, this day is going to come where we're going to present to the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. This is when it will take place. For you are our glory and joy. I think the context is about a pastor presenting to his Savior the church and how he receives the reward. I think that's what he's saying here. And the pastor should live his life in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. He can't get lost in, in all the fears and the struggles. He's got to keep living his life in the light of a coming Savior. The master of the house is coming back. And he's going to say, what did you do with my stuff? And I think pastors get lost in that some days. And we keep thinking, well, maybe I'll get involved in this or that and hope he doesn't show up. He's coming back. And we give an answer someday as pastors to the chief shepherd for what we did with his sheep. I love these three terms in here. Notice he says hope. He says, you are our hope. You are the hope of my promised reward and eternal blessing. You are my hope. And I think that's what Paul's saying in this text. Now, he's not putting hope as a salvation hope in the people, but he says, you're my hope of my reward. Because I will not be judged how I handled um, my tax editing job or my commute to San Jose or, or a myriad of other things that you all do, what God has called you to do. He will say, what did you do with my sheep? My hope is you as I present you to him and say, here they are. Here's the ones you saved. Here's the ones I cared for. I think that's what Paul's saying. He says, you are my joy. In other words, you are my source of joy and eternal happiness. Man, I get that. Nothing but smiles come on my face when I think of each and every one of you. I'm so grateful for you. God used you to refine me and reform me and help me be a better pastor. And, I, and I've heard such very kind things this week. It's kind of like attending your own funeral while you're still alive. <laughs> but you are my joy. You are who I brag about in Christ. Oh, you should see this family. You should see this couple that was struggling and God changed their marriage. You should see these, these young couples start to parent and child, their, child, their children and care for them and point them to Christ. Oh, you should see this man who, who now longs to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and make him first in his life. There's no greater joy to a pastor to say, Lord, here he is. Uses the next word, you're my crown. It's an interesting word. It is not a crown that we see that sits on the heads of kings. It is a victorious wreath for running a race type of crown. He chooses a word very particularly to show that there, there's a victory in the church. There's a victory in offering back these people that you have cared for. And, and, and I'm one who convinced that I don't think we actually get physical crowns, it's not wrong to think that you do, but I think what we're casting back is the fruit of the gospel in our life. 
All these things we'll throw back to the Lord. Peter said this in chapter five of one of First Peter. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, he's talking to elders, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Look at me, just one more set of verses. Go to Philippians, and then I'll wind this up. Philippians 2.16. I just want to prove that he says this in many places. He says, hold fast to the word of life. That's the gospel, the scriptures. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Wow, what a verse. Hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel because when Christ comes back, I'm not going to have to say I did this in vain. And I get that. I want you to keep running. I want you to run, run, run for Christ. And I'm pleading with you to run. So that I could stand there in your presence, in the, in the presence of the Lord and said, Lord, I want to introduce you to these people who you know and you died for. They're my joy. They're my hope. They're my crown. I cast them before you. Chapter 4, verse 1. We preached this just a few weeks ago. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. In verse 20 in our text, he says that the church is his glory. You've heard it say, you've heard little sayings like, boy, he's in all his glory now. You've heard that term, haven't you? Paul's saying, you are my glory. You are my glory and my joy. The fondest memories. And as I pan the room, I mean, it's, 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 times of forgiveness, it's times of repentance, it's times of joy, it's having meals together, it's seeing Christ glorified in all that we did, it's, it's a million things that flood my mind that are my glory as a pastor is what God has done in your life. See, that's what Christ-exalting, bride-protecting, God-glorifying pastors do. We want to give an account to the head of the church. And we want to say, here it is. It's yours. It always was yours. And I give it back to you for your glory. You are my joy and glory, Grace Bible Church, and I love you. Now keep fighting the good fight because it's a great fight. Keep running the race because there is a course to finish. Are you hearing me? Keep running. Keep guarding the faith. Hand it down to you from all time. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Keep running. Keep fighting. Keep in the faith. Last verse after Timothy says, Paul says those things to Timothy that he had fought the fight and kept the faith and run the race. He said in the future, verse eight, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. But he, then he says this, and not only for me, but for also to all who love his appearing. 
And, and I want to just talk on this just for a moment. It is not going, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to get back and all and be everything will be better. People who love his appearing love him right now in their situations therein. You don't just all of a sudden flip, flip on the switch and go, oh boy, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. It is about people who love him now. Now, in difficult times, in hard times, they bend their knee to a great and gracious God and Savior daily. And you're going to fall and you're going to struggle, but you get back up and you say, Lord, forgive me for the power of the cross, which you accomplished, and help me run again. That's the people who long for his appearing. It isn't just some scapegoat to get out of this world. Keep fighting, keep running, keep guarding faith. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. You are unbelievable if it wasn't for the faith that you gave us to believe. That's why more don't believe, Lord. They, they can't believe on their own. It's too, it's too miraculous. It, it's too hard for man to see his sin on his own. But those, Lord, that you have chosen from the foundations of the world to see their sin and the need of a Savior, Lord, we are most, most broken and most full of worship. That you deserve everything we have. So, Lord, we thank you this morning. It has been a tremendous joy to offer back to you Grace Bible Church. I pray that you will use it for your glory. That the body will remain faithful. They'll submit to their leadership as unto Christ. That the leadership will remain faithful to the gospel. And they will continue to point people to Christ. Give them patience. Give them mercy and grace with one another. Love covers a multitude of sins, Lord. It doesn't cover them up and not deal with them, but it covers them, Lord. And that love is your love, Lord. And so we may, may we be a church that forgives because we have been forgiven. So Lord, thank you for Grace Bible Church. I can't thank you enough for how you've used this church. These brothers and sisters who sit before me to reform my life. To be with them, Lord. Keep that hedge around them. Don't let Satan near them. May they continue to lift their voices in both singing, preaching, sharing the gospel. Give them boldness, Lord. And may we all meet in heaven again and offer the glory of what you have done back to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Scott, I'm glad you're not too far away. Would you come back with us and stand alongside Ron and I? This is a song that I know is, is one of Scott's theme songs for the way he lives his life and the way he conducts his ministry. And for a couple of years, we sing 20 feet apart here. But I want him to sit, stand here with Ron and I and just belt it out. You can't hurt anybody. I've been hurting them for years. They're, they're pretty bulletproof. 
I'm not ashamed of the good news of the saving power of God. Speak. 